Very nice to see everybody here this morning. I hope you had a great Christmas. It's, it's wild, isn't it, this week? When you think about you're prepping for Christmas a week ago at this time, we were all sitting in here. John gives us that uh, great reading from the, the Christmas story, and our hearts are filled uh, with, with all that Christmas joy. And here we are now, New Year's Eve, and that's so far behind us. If it wasn't for the Christmas tree, we probably wouldn't remember it happened last week, right? It's just crazy the transition we get in life. But it's, it's wonderful to see you here. Just as a reminder, if you know anybody that might think of coming tonight for a 6.30 service, they will be alone if, and they will be outside in the cold because we will not be here. So remind them of that. Hey, listen, we are jumping into a new series out of uh, the letter of Ephesians uh, from the town of Ephesus. Uh, this was uh, where we left Paul in the Acts series that we're doing, the Acts of the Apostles, and uh, a place where he set down some roots in Ephesus uh, more than anywhere else. In his 35 years of public ministry, Paul spent more time in Ephesus, and uh, it was near and dear to his heart. He first came there on his uh, returning from his second missionary journey, but on his third missionary journey, he crossed over from uh, Jerusalem, way down there in the bottom behind the piano, which you can't see, and uh, he, he actually was, excuse me, that's where he was at, but he traveled back up to Antioch. He went all the way across the, uh, Asia Minor, Turkey there, <laughs> was, I said this when I did the message, 595 miles he walked from Antioch to Ephesus where the arrow points and uh, he stayed in Ephesus for two years. And if you recall, when I did the sermon on that, he preached every day in the hall of Tyrannus for five hours. Wow. So they, they wrote in there that um, all of Asia heard the gospel, you know, which is a little bit of a reach, but n not too much, actually. So Paul uh, did that in around 53 AD, and somewhere in the early 60s, some eight years later, Paul wrote this masterpiece letter to the church of Ephesus while he was imprisoned in Rome. Uh, that's a story we'll get to when we get back to the book of Acts. But what we wanted to do was we want to draw back as we go through the book of Acts. We did this with Exodus. We did this with Galatians. Uh, we'll do it with Peter at one point in one of his epistles. Before we get to the end of the book of Acts, we pull back out. And that's what we're doing here with this letter to the Ephesians. And let me just tell you, this thing is chocked full in the first three chapters of some very rigorous and amazing Christian doctrine. And that normally doesn't excite people when you say doctrine, but this is a different kind of doctrine. This is really a love letter from God's heart to us. And, and you'll see this today right here in just the first six verses I'm going to read. So if you'll join with me, here we go. This letter is from Paul. And I'm going to stop while I'm reading this just to ask you if you're taking notes. This is a message if you don't have notes. And you really want to hang on to some thoughts that I'm going to share today. Go grab them right now. You're not going to disturb me. Just go get a set and grab a pencil because stick it on your refrigerator and go back and look at it sometime this week in the notes you took. Um, no one's getting up. Obviously, they don't like to listen to me, so that's fine. <laughs> That's always a test run. Are they really here? No. Thank you. Wave your notes. Yeah. 
I love you guys. I really do. Uh, <laughs> okay, so look what Paul says. This, I'm chosen by the will of God. I want you to circle that phrase. Chosen by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus. I am writing to God's holy people in Ephesus who are faithful followers of Christ Jesus. Remember, Christ is again what? The office, not the last name. He is the anointed one. That's the Greek word for the Hebrew word uh, Mashiach, Messiah. It's just like saying Messiah Jesus, right? May God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. We sang about that in our songs this morning. Verse 3. All praise to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms. In other words, what we get later, not now. If you're hurting now, that's this side of the spiritual blessings. Because what? We are united with Christ. Verse 4, even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ. Circle that phrase. Chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. You getting a picture here? Of God's sovereignty over all things in creation, including our salvation. And then verse 5, God decided, that's another phrase I want you to circle, in advance to adopt us into his own family. God decided in advance, circle that whole phrase, to adopt us before the foundations of the world were even made. By bringing us to himself through Jesus Christ. What did Jesus say in John 14, 6, just before he went to the cross the next day? No one can come to the Father except through me. Bringing us to himself, the Father, through Jesus. This is what he wanted to do, and it gave him great pleasure to rescue us. As Thomas said in his prayer, I think at the end there, from our sin and our death. It gave him pleasure to do this for us. Verse 6, so we praise God for the glorious grace he has poured out on us. Circle this phrase, who belong to his dear son. Now today, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to stop and address, I think, one of the most controversial doctrines of Scripture. And some of you may have not even heard of it before, but you should. You should have a working knowledge because this could shake you up if you get caught with the wrong person at the wrong time in the wrong room. Um, and and it, it really comes at us in verses 4 and 5. I'm just going to show you verse 4 for the moment. Even before he made the world, God loved us and chose us in Christ to be holy and without fault in his eyes. He decided in advance to adopt us, right? This is a, the fancy terms are predestination, predetermined, or election, that God has elected you to be saved versus the idea that we have a free will choice to accept God or not. Both are clearly, hear me, clearly, both of these concepts are clearly taught in the scriptures, and they appear to be mutually exclusive truths. They are not. God's elect 
I know, we're going to go on a little theological discourse. God's elect, it's a phrase that both Peter and Paul use. It's in your note. I put the verses there for you. Titus 1.1 and 1 Peter 1.1, I believe. And this term refers to people who are predestined by God, chosen by God before they even born to salvation. They are called the elect because that word denotes deciding God, deciding ahead of time, even before we were created, that he would do this for us. God chooses those who will be saved. These are the elect of God. So the big question we're going to answer is, does he choose us individually or does he choose us corporately? You're going to have to wait till the last page. (laughs) But the concept of God electing those who will be saved, predestination, isn't controversial in itself. What is controversial is how and in what manner God chooses those who will be saved. So buckle up, all right? There, there have been two main views on the doctrine of predestination or election. One view is foreknowledge. It teaches that God, through his omniscience, for those of you that don't say omniscience and say omniscience, it's omniscience, meaning what? He knows everything. Obviously, if he knows us before we were born, I mean, this is a big God. And therefore, in his foreknowledge, and it speaks of this in Romans 8, 28 and 29, Uh, those who will choose of their own free will to place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ for their salvation. On the basis of this divine foreknowledge, God elects these individuals that he knows will choose him one day. That's one view. The second view, main view, is what's known as the Augustinian view. Augustine was uh, an early church leader in the early 4th century. He he essentially taught, and many have embraced this, Calvin being one of them, that God not only elects those who have faith in Jesus Christ, but it is God who grants these individuals the faith to believe in Christ. He initiates their ability to make the decision. They don't do it in and of themselves. So the difference boils down to this. Who has the ultimate choice in salvation, God or man? Yes. So um, in the first view, man has control. God can provide a way of salvation through Jesus Christ, but man must choose Christ for himself in order to make the salvation real. I, I think that if we had to describe our own personal experience, we'd say, well, that sounds like what I did, right? In the Augustinian view, God has control. He is the one who, in his own sovereign will, freely chooses those whom he will save. He chooses those whom he will save, and then he saves them. You see the difference here? So if if God chooses those who will be saved, then what difference does it make for anyone to worry about what they believe or not believe? And why preach the gospel? Furthermore, if God elects according to his sovereign will, then how can we be responsible for our actions? These are good and fair questions that need to be considered. And they are in this controversy all the time. In discussing predestination versus free will, and when you say predestination, you can just go slash election. They, they are synonymous terms. Many people so strongly prefer one side or the other, they virtually reject the possibility of having 
the other side even having a hint of truth to it. That's, we do that well as Christians, you know. That was my favorite bumper sticker there for a while. We shoot, Christians, we shoot our wounded. You know, you disagree with me, I can take you out. Um, but let me just say this. And if this feels like it's above your head, man, if you're here for the first time in church, you are stepping in on the great family secret this morning. <laughs> you know, it's like we are opening up the, the secret closet. Let me say this. Numerous other New Testament, New Testament passages refer to those who follow Christ, believers being chosen or elected to salvation. It's all over the New Testament. Yet, the Bible also teaches that people are accountable for what they choose. How do we make sense of this mystery? Is God initiating everything about our salvation? And then why all these, these verses about being responsible for how we decide? It's, it's craziness, I'm telling you. In the foreknowledge view, we know that the Bible talks that God offers salvation to everyone. For the grace of God has been revealed, bringing salvation to all people. Or the offer, I would say, of salvation to all people. Because we know not all are saved, are they? And then how about this one from Romans chapter 1. Paul says, for ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and the sky. Through everything God has made, they can clearly see... This is a great passage if you want to testify to some agnostic or atheist friends. You can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature by what he's created. Stuff doesn't come from nothing. So they have no excuse for not knowing God. No human being can say, I didn't know on that day when they meet Christ. I didn't know. We, a lot of people say, I don't believe that. I, that's not true. I'm into science. You know? So we have no excuse. And it's clear we have a will. We make decisions. Biblically speaking, we have the responsibility all the time in the New Testament to respond what God is telling us to respond to, including his call to believe the gospel, the good news of what Jesus came and did for you. So if I asked you why are you a Christian, I mean, the vast majority of people would say because I made a decision to accept Christ as my Lord and Savior. We've heard that line millions of times. You may say, well, that's what I did. Yet Paul will write in, in Corinthians, I am the least of the apostles. Because Paul was a persecutor of the church. Not only just arrested people, he saw people killed. And he says, and, and before he converted. And I do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. I am what I am. It was his Popeye imitation. <laughs> right? I am what I am, Olive. Um, Paul's saying, I, I became a believer because God stopped me on the road to Damascus and appeared to me supernaturally. And not only that, he took my eyesight from me, and for three days I was blind. And I had a lot to consider in those three days. And I knew I was on the wrong side of the railroad tracks. Yeah. And, he, and he says, because God willed it, I am what I am. Right? I mean, that's a powerful testimony of God choosing him. And, and what he means by the will of God, I am what I am. He goes, by God's plan, I am what I am. By God's choice, by God's purposes, I am what I am. 
So this Augustinian view, another way to put this is you cannot make yourself a Christian by your own choice. You know, I'm, I'm playing both sides of the fence here today, so stay with me. I'm over here on the side where God makes everything happen. And you don't get to make the choice that you become a believer, is how this is taught. And I'll illustrate this for you. In Buddhism, if you want to become a Buddhist, you have to make yourself a Buddhist. And Buddhism will teach you that you need what you need to do to become a Buddhist, right? Do you want to be a Muslim? You have to make yourself a Muslim. And the Muslims will tell you this is what you need to do to become a Muslim, right? Do you want to be a Jew? You have to make yourself a Jew. And the Jewish scriptures will tell you what, and the teachers will tell you what you need to do to become a Jewish person, right? Christianity is completely different, no matter what side of the equation of the story you're on. You can't even want the Augustinians will say, uh, the Calvinists will say, to, to be a Christian unless God has begun to open your heart. And we'll get to that at the last page. God has initiated in you a desire to become a Christian. Now, there's a lot of questions around that thought. Uh, Jesus says, for no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them to me. That's a powerful passage out of the Gospel of John. Uh, it, that God has begun to open your heart. Um, in Calvinism, which is a, Calvin was an early theologian in the 16th century and, and uh, basically built the, the Reformation movement that Martin Luther started back in that time. Um, they would say, because of your total depravity, your sin, you have an inability to find God. You can't find God, right? And, and God has to open your heart. Um, the question for me is, well, what is the opening of that heart look like? We'll get there. So the Father has to open your heart. He has to give you the desire. That's what that verse says. You can't even see the kingdom to want that thing unless God begins to open your heart to it. If you wonder, why are some people missing out on what we understand and believe? And they just resist it so, so hard. Well, you're going you're gonna to hear reasons for that this morning. In the book of Acts 13, Luke, who writes, says that Paul was preaching, and it was a powerful sermon, and the people believed. And he said when the Gentiles, these are non-Jewish people, heard this, they were very glad. They thanked the Lord for his message. And Luke writes, and all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. That God had selected that group of people. And, and those of you on the side of election in your theology, the Bible says, never says we can't choose God. Rather, they would tell you the Bible teaches we don't want to choose God. Not that we're incapable of choosing God, but we're incapable of wanting it. That our fallen nature, our sinful nature, keeps us from even considering it, as it were. That's the idea of being totally depraved, and you needed an awakening from God in order to respond to God. And God chooses who's going to respond. Here's the best example. It's a famous one. It's called the lion's story. If you teach theology this way, uh, and it starts about a story of a lion. And it says, if you put a, in front of a lion a bowl of oats for breakfast on one, on one side, and on the other side you put a piece of raw meat, and you give that lion that choice a thousand days in a row, zoologists will tell you the lion is capable of eating the oats, but he never will. And why is that? Does it mean he doesn't have free will? No, it's his nature to want meat. 
He's a carnivore. So when the Bible says you cannot come unless the Father draws you, that doesn't mean you don't have free will. It's your nature to not want him. And you can't want him unless he opens your eyes because your fallen nature just will not desire the things of God. So what happens is the Bible says God has to come and pull a blindfold off you. That's what Paul writes here in Corinthians. Satan, who is the God of this world, has blinded the minds of those who don't believe. They're unable to see the glorious light of the good news. They don't understand this message about the glory of Christ, who is in the exact likeness of God. So this comes down to, a, this brings us to a question. If, you, if you're going to look at it this way, and it's hard not to based on a lot of these verses. Why should God choose some people and not others? If we're all equal in our fallenness, as it were, right? There is none righteous, no, not one, Romans says in chapter 3. Um, and I can tell you this, no one can answer that question. Why did God choose me? No one can answer that question. That's the difficulty of saying God chooses some to respond to him and not others. That is a difficult question. Now, Paul was acquainted with this question. And in one of the most difficult passages in the entire Bible, but most certainly in the New Testament, and when you go into his letter to the, book of, uh, to the church of Rome, the Romans book, Romans is 16 chapters. In the first eight chapters, Paul builds the doctrine of, of the church. And in ver chapter 9, he begins to move over to application. But before he gets fully into what it means to be a believer and how believers should live, in chapters 9, 10, and 11, he does this little segue. Well, it's not little. It's three chapters of his book. And he, he talks about his Jewish brothers and sisters. I mean, Paul, by his own words, was a what? A Jew of Jews, he said, in Philippians chapter 4. And and Paul says, I, I, I mean, this is one of the most amazing statements I've ever heard in Scripture. Paul, Paul says, I'd rather give up my salvation that my brothers and sisters, Jewish brothers and sisters, could be saved. That, that's how much my heart aches for them not receiving their Messiah, right? And, and so he's answering this question that, that he's hearing from his Jewish audience in Romans chapter 9. Um, this can't be. We are the chosen people. The promises are for us. How is it that the, the Gentiles are receiving blessings and we're not? How is it that we're cut off and they're grafted in? So Paul's addressing this in Romans 9, 10, and 11 to his audience. And he says, what oh, I didn't give you that verse. Where was I at? I was on a blank slide. There it is. I read it to you. I'll let you look at it for three more seconds. <laughs> so chapter 9, Paul says, what shall we say then to this whole issue of why Gentiles are coming in and my Jewish brothers and sisters aren't? Is God unjust? No. Not at all, he says. And then he quotes from his story in Exodus with Moses and, and Pharaoh. He says, for he said to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. And there's a big verse here in 16. It doesn't, therefore, depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. He's, he's teaching a great truth about God's grace. It's, it's about God's mercy, not about what you do. 
right? So the question for me is, is it a conditional mercy offered to all people? Or is it an unconditional mercy offered to just some people? That's the great question. So he goes on to say in this chapter, so you see, buckle up here. God chooses to show mercy to some, and he chooses to harden the hearts of others so they refuse to listen. You're going, what? And so Paul then poses a what-if question. Well, then you might say, why does God blame people for not responding to him if he's hardened them, right? Haven't they simply done what he makes them to do? Verse 20, don't say that. Paul writes, who are you? A mere person to argue with your creator. Should the thing that was created say to the one who created it, why have you made me like this? I mean, that may not sound like a very sufficient answer to you. But Paul is saying this ultimately. And what, what, what is the beginning of wisdom in the Bible? What does it say? The beginning of wisdom was what? The fear of God. And, and not in a, in a, in a, like a hide-and-cower sense in the corner like Adam and Eve did when they covered up and didn't come out when he walked through the garden after they'd sinned. Not that kind of fear. It's the fear that says, he is God and I am not. That's all. So God is sovereign over his creation. He's free to choose those whom he will choose if that's the way he wants to do it. And he's free to pass by those whom he will pass by if that's the way he wants to do it. But regardless, no one Paul says, has the right to accuse God of being unjust. You are way too out of the sphere and the parameter of what goes where and why in this universe to make that accusation ever. The very thought that the creature can stand in judgment of the creator is absurd to Paul. That's all that's saying, okay? But then there's the other side of the coin here. This is where you read verses like John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, or in the King James, whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. There's a choice there, isn't there? In other words, God so loved the world, not just a part of it, Right? John would later write, he has three letters at the end of the New Testament, first, second, third John, very creative, right? He says, Jesus is the sacrifice that atones for our sins. And not only our sins, he's talking about believers, but the sins of all the world. Jesus died for all, not just for the elect. And that is a point of contention with Calvinists. No, he only died for the elect. That's one of their principles. And they'll have an explanation for what this passage actually means. But I'm telling you, it's right there in front of your eyes. Now, here's where really the wicket starts to get sticky. For those of you that play cricket. Oh, croquet. You're right. There you go. Peter, 
He has two letters at the end of the New Testament as well, First and Second Peter. In his second letter, Peter is talking about, to believers, you and I, how we should live our lives as believers, right? So follow along. He says, I want you to supplement your faith with a generous provision of moral excellence. <laughs> and moral excellence with knowledge, and knowledge with self-control, and self-control with patient endurance, and patient endurance with godliness. And godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love for everyone. And we would say, that sounds reasonable if you're going to be a follower of Christ, right? And then he goes on in the next verse, and he says, the more you grow like this, the more productive and useful you will be in your knowledge of Christ, of course. Now, here's where the wicked gets sticky. The next verse, verse 9. Um, but those who fail to develop in this way are short-sighted or blind. These are believers forgetting that they have been cleansed from their old sins. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, make every effort to confirm your calling and election. For if you do these things, you'll never stumble. If election is God's choice alone, and it cannot be undone because it's unconditional, and God is the, be finisher, the beginner and the finisher of it, and God says you will come to him, then what could you do to make it more sure than it already is? Why would Peter say, make every effort to confirm your calling and election if God has already done everything required to make it absolutely sure? And then Peter goes on and implies That your calling and election is sure only if you grow like this. Do these things, the things I just read for you, to make sure you will never fall away. Apparently, if we don't, then it isn't sure at all if we're not doing these things. And what if you do stumble? I've known many people that have Years walked with Christ. Not a lot of people, but I've known them for years to do that and walk away from the faith. One of Billy Graham's main guys for 20 years was a part of his revivals. Rejected Christianity. So one chapter later, here's what Peter says about people like this. When people escape from the wickedness of the world by knowing our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and they get tangled up and enslaved by sin again, they are worse off than before. Before what? Before they knew Christ. And he says in verse 20, it would be better for them that they had never known the way to righteousness than to know it and then reject the command that they were given to live a holy life. <laughs> it would be better if they just stayed where they were without hearing all the good news. Hebrews 6 gives the same warning to us. You can write that in your notes and go read it. It's right at the beginning of chapter 6. If election is all God's doing, nothing you fail to do could make it less sure. Yet Peter warns them, live your life accordingly. 
If you're not, you're worse off than you were before you knew Christ. And the author of Hebrews, which I just mentioned in chapter 6, also writes this in chapter 10. Therefore, brothers and sisters, who's he talking to? If we deliberately keep on sinning after we receive the knowledge of truth, what he means is we all sin, but to deliberately sin is to willfully sin, is to just absolutely have no sense of tension about how you're living your life whatsoever if you're walking right with God or not. No sacrifice for sins is left. What? Wait a minute. I've been called. I've been chosen. My behavior is not measuring up. And I know how um, Augustine would approach that. He would say, well, they were never were believers. But that's not what the context says. These are people who've come to Christ and have fallen away. That's what Hebrews 6 says. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot and what he's done for them, right? Serious warnings about how you live your life as a follower of Christ. Sounds very conditional to me. Jesus, near the end of his great Sermon on the Mount, said, Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it, the broad gate. But small is the gate and narrow the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. It sure appears you get to choose which gate you want to enter. So the way to eternal life appears to be open to everyone on the condition that you walk the road that leads there and walk it to the end of your life. One last verse. The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Patient towards you for what reason? To give you time to repent of sin and be saved. That's why the world and non-believers get to live just as long as believers Longer, yeah. God's being more patient with them. But what's he say here? Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. That sounds like an invitation to the world, doesn't it? Because that's what John 3.16 says, that they should not perish. People should not perish, but they will if they don't believe in God's Son. That's all over Scripture, over and over and over. Both of these terms of God choosing you and being predestining you for something and your personal responsibility are true. And I get it because I've struggled with this. How in the world can they both be true? And, and it's often covered up by going, this is such a mystery. And it is. I'll never deny that it's mysterious how, how it's presented in Scripture. God is absolutely sovereign over all the universe. He's completely in control. So if you're worried about politics, blow it off. God's on his throne. But we make choices. And we are completely accountable before God for those choices. So how do we reconcile what on the surface appears to be a conflict in view. N.T. Wright, uh, a theologian, points out that the main issue with our modern understanding of election 
is that we see it in individualistic terms. That's how we see everything in our culture today. One person's offended, we all have to be offended. But Scripture shows that Israel's, listen to this. This is tough. This is, this is meaty. We're chewing some New York steak or some firm tofu for you vegetarians. <laughs> Extra firm. Scripture shows all throughout the Old Testament that the nation of Israel, God's chosen people, that their destiny and their identity is brought to a culmination in what we celebrated last week. Emmanuel, God with us. And, and the one has a name, Jesus. He is the ultimate chosen one of God. So to be chosen, Wright says, N.T. Wright says, is to be joined to that singular identity that God gives to his son. And his son alone, nobody else has that identity. He is the Lord and the Savior. But we are joined to him by faith. That's what we're going to see in chapters 1 and 2 of Ephesians. Remember, we were, it says in chapter 2, we were once dead and we were made alive in Christ. And we, we share that identity first to the Jew and then to the Gentiles. And so, perhaps, God has predetermined, predestined, and chosen us to be saved in and through that corporate one, Christ, by which we all attach to God. And so all these phraseologies about he's chosen you, is he's ch it's in Christ. He sees this before the foundations of the world, all that would come to him would be saved. So our decisions matter because God chose us in Christ, not individually, but corporately. And all of us who would call on the name of the Lord would be saved, and we have that choice. So is the blindfold removed at the point that the gospel is preached. Is that the methodology of God dealing with our fallen nature? That he actually does give us a choice in that moment because his spirit has come upon us and empowers us to decide to either accept or reject this offer. That's what resonates in my heart because of all the verses. He absolutely is sovereign over whom he chooses, but if he chooses us in Christ, he may give you this opportunity many times to accept the Son, but when you accept the invitation to Christ, you become a new creature. But be forewarned, if you return to the vomit like the dog does, as it says in Scripture. Return to the slop like the pig. Your judgment will be greater. So Peter says, work hard to confirm your election in Christ. The ultimate question then is not whether God's enabling grace is necessary to repent or believe in his son Jesus, but whether this enabling grace is given to all people equally or just a select few. I don't have that answer. I have the answer for me. 
And I am not upset with people who have the opposite answer with me. They are my brothers and sisters in Christ. It's just how I see it. And if I'm wrong, I'll own it to the highest heaven on that day when God reveals it to me. God is indeed sovereign over everything, including who is saved. And at the same time, we are genuinely responsible for our decisions. I don't believe these are mutually exclusive truths. Unfortunately, it is taught that way. God repeatedly in the Bible calls on us to exercise our will to trust in Christ for our salvation. And then tells us we need to pursue obedience to his commands as a response to the gift of grace that he has given to us. And that we should proclaim salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection in his name only. It's a lot to chew on. If you've got questions, you find me this week, okay? I'd love to chat with you. Let's pray. Father, I think we're ending this year. We're going into a new year. Here's a great place for us to start. What the heck did we hear today that we can use tomorrow? I'll tell you what we've heard today that we can use tomorrow and what we sang about today that we can use tomorrow. You love us. And you evidenced that and proved it to us by sending your son who knew no sin to become sin in our place. And we have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ that if we accept him by faith, we who are dead will be made alive in Christ forever. And that we will join this journey of all the other saints throughout history of where we start to be set apart by God to live a life that looks like his son. I've been at this journey for over 40 years and I am amazed at how slow I have progressed <laughs> but that doesn't discourage me because he who began a good work in me will be faithful to complete it Philippians 1.6 and that is true for each and every one of you in this room but it begins and ends with Jesus that you would conform your will to make him your Lord, and thereby he is your Savior. Do not leave this planet without him. We pray this in his most precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. We will take our last offering of December. And there is a discussion group on this message today so for those of you that are going to head up there it's in the conference room above us have a wonderful wonderful new year be safe my brothers and sisters Thank you. God bless Thank you.